This Biz Now podcast is brought to you by Industrious. Here's a provocative idea the real estate industry and the corporate world should stop and ponder for a long minute. You never need to build a new office building again. And if you're a developer who does knock down an old building and put up a new one, or a company who leases space in a building like that, you're killing the planet. I think it's misleading to make people believe that you can build a building without emitting carbon. It's important to be aware that you're emitting carbon. Because if you're not aware of the damage you're making, then you have no incentive to reduce it. The net zero narratives on the real estate side, the fact that I can build a zero building, is, is misleading and is dangerous. All the debates about working from home and the future of the office, which is more productive, will companies take more or less space, will workers want to travel into cities, all pale into insignificance besides one big question. Will changes to the future of work help the fight against climate change or make things worse? A code red for humanity. Tonight we begin with the wake-up call from the United Nations on what they call the unequivocal impact humans are having on our planet. Global climate is one of the many stories knocked off the front pages by this pandemic, but even as the world economy stalls, it's still there. I'm BizNow UK editor Mike Phillips. And I'm BizNow New York City reporter Miriam Hall. And this is Office Politics, the battle for the future of work, a BizNow podcast series. If you take any notice at all of social media, you'll have seen, after a couple of months of the first lockdown, seemingly endless tweets or posts with a title that was some kind of variation of nature is healing, wild boars running through a town centre, that kind of thing. With more of us staying inside and off the roads, cities around the globe are reporting less air pollution. In the United States, Washington, D.C. is experiencing its cleanest spring air in 25 years, while Los Angeles, once ranked the worst air quality in the country, is now boasting some of the best in the world. There was a sense that our enforced isolation was giving the planet a bit of a breather, and that some of the changes forced on society by the pandemic would be great in terms of combating climate change. And working from home fits into that narrative. Think of all the carbon that doesn't get emitted when we're not commuting into work, especially in countries like the US with a high prevalence of car use. Surely working from home is good for the planet. Well, unfortunately, it's not that simple. It never is, is it? There are actually a lot of ways in which remote workers can be emitting more carbon than their office-bound peers because of the food we eat, the electronics we use, or the way we heat our houses. And there are bigger systemic problems too. Like the fact that if companies don't measure the emissions workers kick out when they're not in the office, we may think that we're tackling climate change when we're not. You know you should probably reduce it, but what exactly is your carbon footprint? It is possible to make working from home good for carbon emissions and therefore good for the planet. But it's going to take a lot of thought from individuals, companies and governments. And it's not going to happen on its own. Developing new office buildings is one of the biggest sources of carbon emissions in the world today, because of all that cement and steel they use. For the past century, we've built new offices because as the world of white collar work expanded, we needed them to house workers. But also because if you got it right, developing offices was a great way to make money. Today, it's up in the air as to whether we need any more office space in big cities like London or New York. Companies might grow, but not all of the work those growing companies do will happen in offices. Some of it is gonna happen in our homes. Some buildings are beyond salvation, and knocking them down and building a new one is the best thing for the planet. And some of those buildings that will need to be knocked down are not as old as you think. 
But the real estate sector needs to change its mindset that new development is always good. And companies need to change their mindset too, from thinking that a swanky new, energy-efficient office is always the option that produces the least carbon. More remote work has the potential to create that change, if society grasps the moment. The question of whether working in an office or working from home produces lower carbon emissions is not a new one. It's something academics were asking well before the pandemic. In 2019, a group of British and French academics, led by Andrew Hook of the University of Sussex, gathered together the results of 39 studies into whether remote work is better for the environment than workers travelling into the office. Their analysis found 26 studies said yes, working from home is better for the planet. But when you dig down into the results, it's not quite as clear-cut as you might think. The researchers found that the more rigorous the study, the smaller the gains in carbon reduction. For instance, while people might emit less carbon because they're not driving into work, studies that looked at what workers did when they were working from home found that they might drive to the shops or the gym instead, eliminating some of the benefits of working from home. The 39 studies were undertaken over a long period, and how we work and use energy has changed a lot in the last decade. So what have more recent post-pandemic studies into the question found? It's complicated. So I'm David Simons, and I'm WSP's Director of Sustainability. WSP is a property and design advisory firm, and this year it undertook a sample of 100 British workers and analysed how much carbon their activities pump out when they're working at home versus working at the office, trying to keep that sample as representative of the population as possible. So what did it find? What was surprising that we found was that actually people working from the home typically have round about the same carbon footprint as people working from the office, which was a surprise to us. Why, why was that a surprise? What were you expecting to find? Well, because the natural temptation is to think if you're working from home, it must be lower carbon. But when we looked at the numbers, what we found was that the savings in carbon terms that you're getting from travel to and from the office is about offset, at least in Britain, by the increase in your home energy bills while you're working from home. But within that broad finding that working from home and working from the office are about on par when it comes to carbon emissions, there's a lot of nuance. A lot depends on who you are, where you are and what time of year it is. Here's Simons again. If you just want to slice this a little bit more, if you are on your own, then travelling into the office is, is a lower carbon option. If there's two of you who are working from home, then it's about the same. If, if you've got a houseful at home, um, then it's much less carbon intensive to work from, from home than the office. And there's also a seasonal component as well. So, of course, depending where your listeners are um, in, in the world, Mike, then um, if you're in a northern um, hemisphere climate, then generally winter is when you've got your heating on. Um, so in a summer in Europe, it's always generally better to, to work from home because you haven't got your heating on. Conversely, if you've got lots of air conditioning running, then it's a slightly different circumstance, um, which will be the same for, for some of your listeners who are, for example, in, um, in the States. So when you look at it, in one sense, it's less about whether working from home or going into the office is better for the planet. On an individual level, it's about how do we make sure that whichever option we choose, we make it as environmentally friendly as possible. In some ways, when it comes to working from home, this is really simple stuff. WSP's study found that there is one way to make remote work much more sustainable than working in an office. 
Don't heat the bits of your house you're not using. And definitely don't leave heating on or cooling systems on when you're not actually at home. Something that Simon said a surprisingly large number of people do. And definitely do change to a green energy supplier if you can. But the strange way that the human brain works can also play a part. I think that, um, of course, people, people focus on something very basic, like the fact that uh, there's no more, no more commuting when you're working from home. What we don't focus on uh, is the systemic approach to our urban, urban system. And I think that's for us, is a, is a key driver. That's Basil Demaroudis, Managing Partner and Full Partnership a UK property investor and developer with a big focus on ESG. That's environmental, social and governance, if you're not down with the lingo of the corporate world. We need to look at the choices that we make holistically when that, within the context of that urban system. And by that, I mean, not only just the transportation uh, question, but also around, around food, around waste, around consumer electronics, around the, the carbon footprint of your choices around uh, video streaming. I mean, these are all, these are all hugely, hugely, hugely important. Uh, you know, if you look at, for example, consumer electronics during the pandemic, you know, PC sales were up uh, something like 12, 12 to 13% uh, per annum against a, a backdrop of falling uh, computer sales. So, and we all know uh, anecdotally that there's shortages in, in, in chips. We, we hear we can't buy the kinds of uh, products that we, we want, whether that's new cars or, or new phones. Um, so what is, the, what is the carbon impact of those decisions um, at a systemic level? Uh, what does it mean for us around uh, uh, energy and where do you buy your energy from at home? Do you buy 100% renewable energy? At our offices here, we're on 100% wind energy and I've got a certificate um, demonstrating that. So what individual choices are you making at, at, at home and, and will those choices necessarily be better than the choices that are made within the context of, of, of an office. In April this year, academics at the London School of Economics put out a paper on how employers can work with staff and use behavioural psychology techniques to nudge their workers to make more sustainable choices when working from home. This includes things like making sure that workers don't unnecessarily duplicate electronic devices, having one laptop at home and another one in the office, with all the extra raw materials that consumes. If only people really, really necessary for a video caller online, it cuts down on the emissions from the servers needed to enable those trillions of video calls we're all now having. It's more of an intervention than a subtle nudge, but companies can also encourage workers to commit to eating meat-free lunches to reduce their carbon footprint. And on a personal level, leftovers for lunch also reduce food waste. But there are bigger factors that can ensure that, whether we're working from home or in the office, the personal emissions created by our work life are reduced. A study by the Carbon Trust found that working from home was on the whole better in terms of carbon emissions than commuting to the office. But like WSP pointed out, in different countries and at different times of year, this finding was often reversed. The report put forward recommendations for policymakers about how to reduce emissions in the new world of hybrid work, and one of those relates to the way we plan our cities. The 15-minute city is a concept pioneered by French Colombian scientist Carlos Moreno, the idea being that people should be able to live, work and spend their leisure time within a 15-minute radius, ideally travelling by foot or on bike. It's an idea that the Carbon Trust's Sophie Bordat thinks planning authorities need to consider when deciding in future what gets built and where in our cities. Essentially, the framework is to think about within a 15-minute 
walk or bike, you need to be able to access any essential needs. The idea is to really be able to provide facilities or respond to any service that people need. And so that should include hubs and co-working space, um, green spaces and so on. And so Paris has been really leading that and focusing a lot on developing more green spaces within the city, adding more kind of parks, adding more green avenues and so on. There's another important factor to consider, one that's a little bit nerdy, totally overlooked and absolutely crucial when it comes to the debate about what's going to be better for the planet, working remotely or going to the office. Are we actually counting emissions properly now people are working from home? John Lovell is the founder of Hillbreak, a consultancy that advises big financial investors on ESG matters, particularly in relation to property. When it comes to the kind of the carbon question, I I think there's been quite a lazy assumption that because we're using workplaces of the in a traditional sense less, and the numbers that organisations are having to uh, report against in terms of the impact of of workspace. Uh, and workplace are lower than they have been previously. There's this assumption that, you know, actually from a climate point of view, it's better for, for people to be working from home. He's talking about how big companies measure their carbon emissions. Hundreds of corporates around the world have committed to become net zero by a certain date, basically reducing their carbon emissions so they take out of the atmosphere as much carbon as they emit. In 2020, when looking at the carbon emitted by their office use, these companies got something of a free pass. Hey, look, emissions dropped massively. But that was only because no one was using those offices for huge periods of time. If companies don't count the carbon emitted when staff are working from home, then the world has a big problem. We might think carbon emissions are going down when they're not, making it all worse rather than better. I think there was a a complacency, and still is a degree of complacency, about the fact that, you know, the effects of the pandemic caused us to change our behaviour. Um, and that those changes in behaviour led to very significant, very immediate benefits in terms of, um, you know, reducing the carbon impact of our lifestyles. But I think the effect of that was to give people the impression that we can, that solutions to this problem are easier than they really are, because the behaviour change issues are to an extent going to be temporary you know you can see how desperate people are to regain a sense of the life and life lifestyles that they held um previously not not everyone by any stretch of the imagination but i think it it took away some emphasis on the need for fundamental system change what could businesses do to help fight the climate crisis I've got a few ideas. One of the greatest tricks that the corporate world ever pulled was to convince the public that we as individuals are responsible for battling climate change. I'm only six. You figure it out. What's it going to take for you to do something? Of course, we all need to do our individual bit to try and reduce emissions on a global scale. But in the same way that your individual vote doesn't have any impact on the result of a general or presidential election, your individual actions have no tangible impact on climate change. It's only governments and big companies who really have the power to move the needle, who can make changes in policy or practice that can start to make meaningful reductions in global emissions. Companies are the big carbon emitters, so what they do and how governments influence what they do through regulation is what really matters. And when it comes to the way we work and the impact that has on climate change, what the companies that build and occupy offices do really matters, 
much more than whether we as individuals are emitting carbon on our commute. Meet Olivier Elamine. He's the chief executive of Austria, a company that owns dozens of offices across Germany. We heard from him at the top of the programme, talking about how dangerous it is for a sector like real estate, which develops new buildings, to claim that it can ever be net zero when it comes to carbon emissions. He thinks that, on balance, in big cities like London or New York, we probably never need to build a new office building again. Where we're saying, you know, people are going to be working from home two-thirds of their time, um, it, it becomes almost obvious that, uh, you know, you probably don't need to build much more than what you currently have. Because if you could host, uh, you know, 100% of the people 100% of the time, you can surely host 100% of the people two-thirds of the time. Um, so, so I think the argument becomes even stronger to say, you know, why do we actually need to build much more than what we currently have? For Elamine, the biggest impact of increased remote work when it comes to climate change is the effect it will have on office demand. If many of us are working from home two or three days a week, then that has an impact on how much office space companies need. And if companies need less office space, we should build fewer buildings. Obvious, right? Unfortunately, not. Office buildings don't necessarily get built because we as a society need them. As Elamine explains, they get built because they make money for the people building them. And actually, if you look at what happened, a lot of the new buildings are actually tearing down an old one and then building a new one. And that new one might be a bit bigger. And, but the reason why it's bigger is not so much because there's a need for a bigger building, but it's just that if you increase the density and the number of square meters of your plot of land, then the plot of land itself is more valuable. So this is how we've been making money in real estate, by densifying uh, the or, or increasing the amount of square meter you can build on a single uh, plot of land. Uh, but from a, from a society perspective, I actually don't believe you need more than what we currently have. So why is that a problem? Because when it comes to climate change, building new buildings is really, really bad. Developers often put forward an environmental rationale for knocking down old buildings and putting up a new one. The fact that older buildings tend to be less energy efficient, and so the new one will use less carbon in its operations. But that ignores the fact that new buildings, with all that concrete, glass and steel, put a huge amount of carbon into the atmosphere, more on average, than even the most energy efficient building can save over the course of its lifetime from being operated in a less carbon intensive way. According to a study by Architecture 2030, using figures from the UN and the US Energy Information Administration, 75% of the carbon emitted during a building's life cycle comes from its construction and demolition, and just 25% from its operations. If you don't destroy an existing building to build a new one, which is bad, but not as bad as if you do a greenfield development, if you build a new building, the energy demand, as low as it might be in the future, is coming as an incremental demand. The new construction, which is planned across the globe between today and 2050, is as much emission as the entire construction that currently exists. So we need to double our effort on the existing buildings simply because we are keep on building new buildings. And I'm not arguing you can stop constructing everywhere because again, you need to construct residential. There are other countries where they do not necessarily have the same infrastructure that we have uh, in Europe in the most of the advanced economy. But in our economies, if we can do the effort to not add to the burden of everybody else, I think what's important to realize is every new building which is built, not only it increases the problem because it's emitting carbon, but it actually increases the need to decarbonize the existing stock because it's adding additional energy demand. And so 
as, as if somebody is building a new building, it's making it harder for me to actually achieve decarbonization on my portfolio because I need to compensate for the additional energy demand he is creating. Efforts are being made to create building materials that are more efficient, such as recycled concrete. But even here, there are unintended environmental impacts. Uh, so you can reduce through design, uh, and, and that you should do also when you renovate, you can reduce through design some of the emission. But at the end of the day, you still need to use concrete. We just don't know how to do otherwise. And that concrete is going to be dirty. Uh, by the way, which is also interesting to see is the way we green concrete today and we reduce emission with concrete is by using byproduct of coal power plants. I mean, fly ash and or, or steel. So you're, you're in essence, when you buy green concrete, you're funding coal power plants. Uh, which is an interesting, if you think about it for two minutes, you're using green finance to actually go and fund coal power plants, some of them in China. We don't have to tell you that the future of work is complicated. Get a partner who can make your team's return to the office simple with Industrious. Industrious has offices, suites, and hybrid solutions for companies of all sizes and stages in more than 100 locations across the U.S. and the U.K. Go to industriousoffice.com to discover how Industrious can help bring your team into the future of work. Industrious at industriousoffice.com. One solution, which many in the real estate industry are coming around to, is to refurbish and repurpose older buildings to make them more energy efficient. It's not a perfect solution by any means. Newer buildings are more energy efficient than older ones that have been refurbished and had carbon saving technology put back into them because of the improvements in design and systems that continually come through. And even refurbishing an old building requires materials to be used, creating a carbon footprint. But looked at as a whole, a good refurbishment beats a new office development when it comes to the total emissions from the construction and operation of the building. So it's positive that the driving factor of all business is starting to look favourable when it comes to refurbishments. As Elamine mentioned, developers have typically built new offices because it's the best way to turn a profit. But that's not always the case today. Here's Four Partnerships Demarutis. I think there's no greater um, uh, motivator than, than, the, than the almighty financial one. And I, what we've been able to achieve uh, is to demonstrate that actually an old building that, and doing a refurbishment of an old, old building can, be, can drive rents just as much as it can uh, a brand new shiny building. In, uh, in Manchester, for example, our building, Windmill Green, we were achieving 34 to 36 pounds a square foot during the pandemic in the latter half of, uh, and, and middle half of, tw- of 2020 against prime grade A brand new construction rents that are only marginally above that 37.50 a square foot. This is a refurbished building with exposed concrete soffit and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and an irregular column, column spacing. So people are buying something else other than just bright, shiny new objects. They're buying your values, your vision, what the building stands for. And I think once we can finally demonstrate that um, conclusively, then I think that the scales will tip in favour of of refurbishment um, rather than redevelopment. And that financial motivation won't necessarily just come from the price that tenants are willing to pay for space. It might come in the form of regulation making it more expensive to build new buildings, specifically a carbon tax. 
Here's Hill Breaks John Lovell again. And I've got two words uh, for you, Mike, carbon pricing. Okay, so that that is going to be the key tool, which either on a voluntary basis or in due course from a mandatory point of view really changes that dynamic. So we see now a number of developers in the market, particularly some of the REITs, uh, but not exclusively, adopting internal carbon prices or car internal carbon taxes effectively um, for their development activity so that their development teams are more financially incentivized to do everything they can to reduce the embodied carbon impact of their, of their schemes. Um, there, there is no question in my mind that carbon pricing at a market-wide level that tackles that uh, those kind of deeper recesses of the carbon impact of, of the built environment, if you like, is a necessary tool that we need to bring into effect to properly change that dynamic at the rate and at the extent to which we need to, it to occur. This is going to be a major project. You know, they're going to tear down the building starting next year, and uh, it's going to be a five years of construction. So uh, if you work for JP Morgan, you'll be spread out into other offices for the next few years, but then you'll have a a new tower to come back to. So when it finishes, what will Of course, like? it's not just developers that need to be weaned off their addiction to new office buildings. It's the companies that occupy the space in those buildings as well. And here you have a similar problem to the one we talked about earlier when discussing working from home versus the office. When they measure the carbon footprint of their operations, big companies measure emissions from the operations of their buildings, but not necessarily the emissions that went into developing these offices. If it's a new building, there's a strong argument that those emissions should go on the tab of the companies that take the space there. The building wouldn't get built without them agreeing to pay to occupy it. Not everyone agrees that the demand for office space will drop enough so that we can confidently say that we don't need more square feet to house growing companies. Here's Demarutis again. It's a good question to ask and it's the right question to ask. Is it, is it just that we've got the wrong kind of stock in the right place and it just needs to be reactivated? Do we have to rethink about the offices that, that we have and just sort of treat them differently? Or do we actually have the right kind of stock but in the, in the wrong locations? Do we need to think about building offices in, in, uh, in kind of spoke locations as opposed to, to hub locations? I don't know if there's a, a necessarily a right or a wrong answer, answer to that question. It seems to me in, in, that there will be a period of time where we're absorbing some of the uh, excess capacity that is for sure in the in the market as we as we as we recycle um, old buildings into new and rethink about how we're using them. Um, but equally, I think it's um, there is innovation that is happening. There is genuine demand that we're seeing. Uh, the amount of gray space that uh, is being sublet out into the market is reducing dramatically and, and companies are withdrawing gray space that they had been previously marketed to keep it for themselves. So I think vacancy and, and this excess structural supply problem that we're seeing will unwind in time. I, I think it's going to take some time, but I, I don't think it's a forever problem. Um, I, I, but I, I think that we've got the, 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 the wrong kind of real estate in the right places and it, and it really needs just to be reactivated and, and reimagined. Um, but, there's no, but there's no clear, clear winners. I think we're in a, in a, living in a nuanced world. And unfortunately, some buildings are going to have to be knocked down and new ones put up in their place. And it's not just very old buildings that will need to be totaled it will quickly become apparent that some surprisingly new buildings won't be able to cope with how the world is going to change. All those glass buildings are not going to age well as the world gets hotter. Here's Lovell from Hillbreak again. Because they have been designed 
uh, with a a view of um, uh, architectural arrogance, I suppose, that doesn't respect the fact that our climate is changing and that the and the effects of that change or those changes in climate will make those spaces um, unserviceable and uninhabitable because they'll be, you know, too hot, for example, and particularly, um, you know, one, one of the uh, one of the key issues is, you know, not just, you know, because someone could again play devil's advocate and say, well, just throw more cooling kit in there, but you know, just just makes the problem even worse, you know, for, from all sorts of all sorts of angles. So we we have built, I think, in my opinion, we have built a huge amount of. Uh, of, of you know stock that will be obsolete much quicker than it, you know people envisaged at the point at which it was uh, designed. So much about the return to work, if it happens and how, is about how we can make the world of the office better. But when it comes to climate change, the more important question is how can the office make the world better? This BizNow podcast is produced by me, Miriam Hall. And me, Mike Phillips, with script editing from Ethan Rothstein. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It helps other people to find us. Hold up. 